Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Welcome back to an unprecedented part three of our coverage, continuing as it is of the life <laughs> of Maya Angelou. In part two, we talked about Maya's return to her son Guy after an overseas tour with Porgy and Bess. We talked about her entertainment career, the beginnings of her civil rights work with Martin Luther King Jr., her relationship and life with African civil rights leader Vazumzi Make, and her life without him in Ghana, West Africa. So Maya in Africa had received frequent updates on the civil rights situation in America from her hero, co-worker, some might say, and friend Malcolm X. I saw a video of old Malcolm X, and he's quite charming on video, lest we forget. And he said to the reporter, no, if you put a knife nine inches into my back and you pull it out six inches, I do not consider that progress. The knife must be removed for the scar to be able to heal. And I totally subscribe to that philosophy. However, he was also the same guy that said the Kennedy assassination was nothing more than, and I quote, chickens coming home to roost. So you can see how he might have enemies from many quarters. And I'm sure we don't have to tell you that his work was bringing danger to himself and his family. Death threats were a daily occurrence. You never really knew his phone number because he had to change it so often. But he was convinced that the United States was on the verge of great change and that his organization of Afro-American unity would be key to that change. It was planning to formally take the plight of African-Americans all the way to the United Nations as an oppressed minority and ask the world community to intercede on their behalf. Officially, if only, he said, I had a good administrator, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) (laughs) You have good analysis of the situation. You have great communication skills, a wide network of acquaintances. You always keep your feet on the ground Love your brother, Malcolm, came the letter. She was flattered to be asked, and her friends in Africa were very impressed. There had been a feeling in Africa that once African-Americans had, quote, settled their own business for good, unquote, then they could return to Africa and join that fight. But Ghana was, shall we say, becoming disillusioned about their president, about his policies and his reliance on African-American civil rights leaders. And there was definite sentiment in the air that they're coming down the train tracks might very well be the overthrow of this president that might be in the cards. So that is all happening in the background. For quite some time, Maya had felt pulled back to the United States. She knew she was African-American, but the accent was not on Africa for her anymore. It was on America. She didn't really want to leave Guy, but Guy, who was going to college in Ghana, said, no, no, mom, go ahead. He was ready for some independence of his own. So she accepted the position. And I imagine that we will all have a variation on this coming, don't we? Bye. I love you. You're suffocating me. Can I have a hundred bucks? You're not the boss of me. (laughs) Yes, I know. I've had to go off (laughs) and their hands coming back. (laughs) Oh, dear. Well, for all of these factors, Maya did decide it was time to make a change. It was time to go home to America and perhaps make a difference. 
And she got back to the United States and was kind of overwhelmed, I think, by just things. You know how there was an adjustment period when she got there realizing, oh, wait, people of color are in every layer of society here. There's not the same rigid structure that there was in America. And then, of course, she comes back from Africa to America and there's that stress in reverse. And so she called Malcolm X to tell him she had landed and he said, I'll meet you at the airport. Mm. She was so overwhelmed by the sounds and just the activity just in the airport itself that she said she needed some time to decompress, that she had booked a flight to San Francisco. She was going to go home and see her mother and come back and start work with him in a month. She just needed this time to adjust. And he was disappointed, but I have to say he he understood. And then she gets back to her mother's house. And the first thing her mother said was, I heard you were coming back to work with Malcolm X. I sure hope not. He's a rabble rouser. Yeah. (laughs) And it was kind of shocking because her African bubble had held Malcolm X up as a golden hope, you know? Right. And so she had kind of a shocked emotional adjustment, like you do when you venture out of your bubble. Why don't you go back to work for Martin Luther King, said her mother. He's really trying to help our people. And the thing is, Maya had actively hidden her involvement with Martin Luther King from her revolutionary-minded friends in Africa. His mildness or perceived mildness and his pace were sort of embarrassing, I think, once you had gotten into the middle of the revolutionary spirit there in Africa. There is something else that surprised Maya when she returned to San Francisco. Her brother, Bailey, who had been working as a chef in Hawaii, had come back to visit and he was sitting in the car. That must have been such a wonderful surprise. I can't even imagine. You know, those YouTube videos like surprise, especially now. Oh, my gosh. I start crying about the ones that are my mom doesn't know that I'm fully vaccinated and I'm surprising her. It's like I'm, I'm watching all of them. Go, so, yes, look at you hugging. Sorry. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I was watching a whole bunch of them yesterday and I was just getting like weepy. Well, Bailey is her favorite person. We do not happen to have that meeting on video, but I can only imagine it was very touching and emotional. However, that being as it would be, after only a couple of days, Maya started thinking, you know, okay, I should be moving on. Back to the people who have my same philosophy, maybe in New York, Uh, because this is kind of dragging me down. One of her oldest friends called up and was all, I cannot believe you came back to this crazy place. And by which she meant America. These Negroes in this country have to be out of their minds. Otherwise, why would they have just killed that man in New York City? Maya's jet lag had barely dissipated when she got this call. And when her friend said, why would they have killed that man in New York City? She knew she didn't have to get a name. So three men had stormed the stage where Malcolm X was speaking during a meeting of his organization for Afro-American Unity. They stormed the stage, they shot him approximately a dozen times, and got away in the pandemonium. Malcolm X had been shot in front of his wife and his four children. I will tell you, there is still debate Mm -hmm. as to who exactly assassinated him in the first place, but new evidence, I'm talking from February of this year, there was a deathbed confession by a Black officer who claimed he had infiltrated Malcolm X's organization and framed some of his bodyguards so they would not be available during that speech. 
Netflix released a documentary called Who Killed Malcolm X, which posits that two of the three men that were convicted uh, were likely innocent and that the real conspirators have not been identified, much less prosecuted. The Innocence Project is actually looking at this incident. Isn't that something? It kind of reminded me, I mean, in a way of the Lizzie Borden case and how it's never been fully solved to everyone's satisfaction. I mean, I guess any assassination is that way, you know, where they don't catch the person with the gun in their hand. Right. Like JFK, for instance. Yeah. But that's all in the future from Maya's perspective. Right now, she's thinking, if only I had let him pick me up at the airport that day. Maybe this wouldn't have happened. Maybe I could have stopped them. Maybe I would have been there with him. You know, it just blew her mind that Black Americans killed Malcolm X. She was grieving and just so bewildered also at the lack of sadness or even lack of concern on the faces of African-Americans she saw in San Francisco, where she was, quote, demoralized and wrote, there is no longer any center to the world and its known edges had become dim. Like, why were they that indifferent? She thought he was on a stage advocating for them. And they did this. And Maya was spiraling downward and just couldn't manage to go to New York. She didn't feel like she could stay in the indifferent city of San Francisco anymore. And, you know, of course, Africa has fallen into turmoil. Where is she supposed to go? She went back to Hawaii. She went with Bailey to Hawaii, back to those jazz clubs we had talked about in part two. Her heart wasn't entirely in it. But it was a good place for her to just heal emotionally and perform the community that she had been a part of in Hawaii that Bailey was a part of, held her up through this time and gave her opportunities. But in the background, in her mind, there was on a choo-choo train the thought, what to do, what to do, what to do. Well, the autobiography of Malcolm X came out the same year that he was killed, ghostwritten or written, we don't know which, by Alex Haley, who would later go on to write Roots. I'm sure you're all familiar with that. And Maya was slowly becoming certain that her friend would not, in fact, be forgotten. But it took an actually great singer, you know, Billie Holiday told Maya, (laughs) you know, you don't sing that good, Um, (laughs) took a great singer appearing at a club down the block who sucked all of her audience down the street to shake Maya out of her days. Della Reese was on that stage. She was a performer. And honestly, the only thing I knew her from is Saved by an Angel, a TV show in the 90s, I think. It was a long time ago. She was an angel. But um, yeah, she was performing and Maya was just comparing herself saying, that's a performer. That's a singer. That's what I'm not. And it just became clear to her that not only was her heart not in performing and singing, but she just didn't have the talent required to go to the next level like Della Reese had. She moved to L.A. and she bought a studio apartment and she painted everything white. I love this image. She's just restarting her life, trying to figure out where her path is. She paints the walls and the floors, everything in the studio apartment, white, white. She'd gotten a job with random research. Her job was to go door to door in the neighborhood of Watts. It was a black neighborhood. It was an impoverished neighborhood. 
And she realized very quickly that the script that she had been given to talk to these housewives about, you know, what kind of toilet paper do you use? What kind of peanut butter do you use? Was not written by people who knew them. So just like how she was hustling drinks back at the house of Allah, she was using that same honesty with these people saying, look, if you answer my questions and don't slam this door in my face, the people that hired me will put products that they can sell to you in the stores, products that you're looking for. So I just loved her honesty. And people would open their minds, they opened their doors, they opened their mouths, and she had a quick lesson in what it was like to be a Black person in Los Angeles at that particular period of time. So she arrived back in L.A. just in time to bear witness to the Watts riots, which were six days of violence in response to an episode of police brutality. During those six days, the National Guard was brought in. There were four thousand arrests. There was $40 million worth of destruction to property, and there were 34 deaths from the Watts riots. I would love to say at this point that it was something that happened that caused change, and it did short-term, but the neighborhood never got the support from the state that they were hoping for. You know, the jobs and the daycare centers and the educational opportunities that this neighborhood needed that the African-Americans of California needed in general. None of that happened after this riot, which makes it just even sadder that it just kept repeating. You know, we have that benefit of knowing what happens after 1968, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it just keeps going. She wrote a poem inspired by all she had seen. And I, of course, won't recite the whole poem, but there is a phrase that kind of stuck with me. And I quote, TVs crackled with static, plugged in only to a racial outlet. She decided that writing was going to be her future. She was absolutely sure of it. New York, she thought, New York is a perfect place for me to go to become the writer I want to be. Before she moved to New York, she got a call. Guy had come back to the United States. He had graduated from college, but the call was from her family. He had been sitting in a car and a truck plowed into it. Once again, right when he got to his next stage in his life, he was laying in a hospital bed with a broken neck. So Maya went, dashed her plans to go to New York for that moment and went up to San Francisco to be with her son until he was well enough to hand him over to her mother for the final stage of his recuperation with grandma, which seems like a good place for him anyway. And so off to New York City, she went where her literary friends and connections were. And I am constantly surprised slash full of admiration at the bravery of her moving. You know, we just say, oh, she went to NY. But you know, you have to wrap things up. You have to line things up. You have to just fling yourself into the unknown. And she does it over and over. Mm-hmm. And I know that some people wear their surroundings more lightly than I do. I think I have cried grievously every time I've moved. And I hate to think about leaving this house with the height chart on the bathroom oh, I know. door and, and all that. And, and so... I don't know. You know, there's like the whole fantasy of moving to France, but then you have to think about, mm, I'm going to move to France. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> Maya doesn't seem to have that trouble like I do. She got in touch with a friend named Jerry Purcell, uh, a nightclub owner that she had once worked for also, asking him for a job or maybe a lead on a job, explaining that she wanted to go ahead and explore writing poetry. 
of course, as always. But playwriting was her passion, and she just needed something to keep body and soul together, as they say, while she worked on her writing. Could he help? And not only did he help her, he handed her an envelope full of cash, an offer of free meals at his restaurant, and as it turned out, though we don't know this at this fateful lunch meeting, two years worth of patronage. He is the New York City de' Medici, patron of the arts. There were no strings attached. This was not a boyfriend situation. He told her, I know no one more talented than you. How much more art would have been produced in history had the artists been free to pursue their art? You know, whether it be Mm -hmm. music or literature, we can't all be Mozart, you know, with Marie Antoinette's mother throwing money at him and stuff. So I don't know. I don't know. But Maya was one of the beneficiaries of that kind of generosity. It wasn't like she was a starving writer either. She was living in a pretty swanky one-bedroom apartment on Central Park West. She had a park view. What a great place to be inspired, I would think. The Harlem Writers Group rallied around too. They furnished her apartment, they helped her to refine her art, and they basically just welcomed her into their world. Her circle of acquaintances became quite large. She remet and reacquainted with author James Baldwin, who became one of her closest friends. And he invited her to an event in which he was a speaker, the opening act, as it were, a concert to celebrate the 100th birthday of everyone's dear departed W.E.B. Du Bois. And it was to be held at Carnegie Hall. Now, the main attraction after James Baldwin had spoken was none other than Martin Luther King himself, who brought the biography of W.E.B. Du Bois and his struggle just alive for the audience. He is a great speaker. Mm -hmm. And he involved everyone's emotion and um, anger and pride. And by the end of his speech, everyone was on their feet. And the room was electrified. And Martin Luther King, after all was said and done, came up to the Baldwin family box. Maya was obviously very excited to see him, but he had something for her. He was planning a poor people's march on Washington, and he wanted her to come back to work for him. He wanted her to travel the country, organizing church groups, getting every church to donate one Sunday's offering to fund this march for however long it was going to take. You know, he was talking about camping. They might have to be there for a long time. It was going to need a lot of money. He knew that she was the speaker and the organizer to make that all happen. He said, and I quote, I need you, Maya. Not too many black preachers can resist a good looking woman with a good idea. (laughs) And then he said the following, which I think is so pointed. Also, whenever anyone accuses me of just being nonviolent, I can look at him and say, well, I don't know. I got Maya Angelou back with me. (laughs) Her reputation has preceded her. I mean, it was a perfect, perfect opportunity for her because he only needed her for about a month. And then she could go back to her life in New York and work on her writing. And she said, "Okay, but I have a 40th birthday party coming up and I really am looking forward to this party. I'm hosting it. I will report to work the Monday after. Is that okay?" And he said, absolutely. And so birthday day approached. It was the big four. Oh, she was going to have everyone over to crowd her apartment. She had been cooking all day. Texas no bean chili, which is Zephyr right? Previously, yeah, right. would be yeah. so proud of her. Uh, ham, mac and cheese, yams, pineapple upside down cake. She said her house smelled like Christmas. Oh, my goodness. Okay, next door. 
Next door, they are putting the gutters on the house. Okay, so if you hear banging, there's nothing I can do. I would say I could go outside and ask them to stop, but literally all the gutters of the next door house are lying in their front yard and it is supposed to rain tomorrow. So I imagine they're on a bit of a time crunch. Oh, definitely. So I cannot tell them to stop. So if you hear banging, um, that's them. If I hear somebody crashing, like a ladder falls off, I will stop and go check on them. But otherwise, I think we'll just push on. Is that okay with everyone? Works for me. All right. Works works for me. The only other person on this conversation right now. (laughs) (laughs) So Maya was having a glass of wine with her neighbor, who coincidentally had the exact same birthday that she did. That is something to celebrate. I hope he was invited over to eat pineapple upside down cake, which I think I'm going to make this week because... I haven't thought about that in years. Anyway, that was one of the first pandemic foods people were making was pineapple upside down cake and banana bread. I don't know why. Well, I know why banana bread, because like it doesn't take any skill. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You say effort, I say skill. But the fact is, it's delicious. I mean, it's no sourdough. I mean, you got to know what you're doing to make sourdough. And that was a little bit later after everyone had practiced baking for a while. Right, right, right. Well, so Maya got a phone call and her friend said, don't turn on your TV don't turn on your radio. Please do not answer the phone until I get to your house. Promise me. Okay, said Maya. That's weird, but okay, I promise you. Maya opened the door to see her friend with just a terrible look on her face. And Maya said, come in, come in. It can't be that bad. And her friend is crying and she says, yes, it can be that bad. Martin Luther King was shot. He's dead. Later, Maya said of that moment, some words are spoken and not heard because the ears just cannot accept them. The eye seems to see them. So I saw the letters D-E-A-D. But who? She just couldn't understand what her friend had just told her. It didn't go in. And everyone sort of migrated to Harlem. Maya wrote about the environment in uh, her book, A Song Flung Up to Heaven, Waves of noise of every kind flooded down 125th Street. There was an undulation of raw screams followed by thuds. On the evening of April 4th, 1968, a lamentation would rise and hold tremulously in the air, then slowly fall out of hearing range just as another would ascend. Everyone was asking why, why, and then strangers hugged strangers and cried. And Maya was looking around and someone explained to her that this is half guilt. Lots of people had loved Malcolm X and we didn't show it. We didn't show it then. Tonight is half Martin Luther King and half Malcolm X. And it's all grief. Mm -hmm. And she fell apart, having been very close to both men and having worked toward a better future for her people with both men. She was hit harder than other people, maybe. And friends kept checking on her and they did keep her fed. Weeks later, her friend James Baldwin, the author, came and literally pried her out of the apartment. I'm taking you somewhere. And that's exactly what Bailey had done after Malcolm X had done. He took her to a dinner party and um, she later said that it had saved her spirit. He told her that we, the African-American people, put our surviving into songs and stories in order to preserve them, our spirits, and to survive. You have to laugh whenever you get the chance. You, you have to survive. You have to move on. You have to pull yourself together and you have to tell the stories, Maya. 
she is such a good person to attract such wise counselors and such loyal friends. Mm-hmm. I am struck by that during her whole story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the people that held her up when she needed it. But my guess is that she did the same for them when they needed it. It just didn't always make it into her story. That was their life story to tell. Well, and you know, there's all that philosophy, what you put out into the world comes back to you. Right, right, right. Whether it's the concept of karma or just Mm -hmm. energy or attitude or whatever. So I agree. Well, she was cold called by the representatives of a PBS station in San Francisco, introduced by another friend of hers, um, another restaurant owner, restaurant people, man, (laughs) they're the best. Um, Are you interested in the subject of African-American culture? These people said, (laughs) she said out loud. This just hearing about this conversation, it just sounds like they were almost like they could be punking her because everything was perfect. You know, we're looking to do a show about African-American culture and its roots in African culture. I mean, she had lived in Ghana. She had been a singer. She had been an artist. There's nobody more specific to this particular task than Maya Angelou. She said to them, in fact, in Ghana, I was struck by how much of what I thought was Afro-American culture really has its origin in Africa. And um, they were so impressed by that, you know, that she understood their, their concept right away. And they said, we need an insider's voice for this project. And she thought, well, if there is one thing I am, <laughs> I am inside of African-American culture. And in the genre of fake it till you make it, She smiled and said, I do have some ideas for a documentary. How long is your show? We are producing a series. There's going to be 10 one-hour shows. (gasps) But like anything else that she's done in her life that she probably on paper wasn't qualified for, she just said, okay. And they asked her if she had an agent. She didn't have an agent. I have a manager. But she gave them her friend Jerry Purcell's number. And she was just hoping she could get to Jerry and tell him that, you know, He was her manager before these people called him. What is that saying? A good friend will help you bury the body. Well, this good friend will negotiate and get you a TV deal. What? (laughs) Maya describes things so comedically, I think. She wrote, with time and a kindly librarian, any unskilled person can learn how to build a replica of the Taj Mahal. (laughs) Well, she couldn't just go and Google how to write and produce a TV series. She was so good at research. I mean, she'd been doing it her whole life. When she didn't know how to do something, she knew where to go to learn how. And that was her library. So she read books about documentaries. She dissected and outlined other documentaries. She looked for a book called How to Write for TV. Uh, What does a producer do? What is a grip exactly? What is a boom? (laughs) What's a jump cut? What are the mechanics of a camera? Like every aspect of everything went in her head. You never know. You know, she thought what you might need. She has been an autodidact her whole life. And this practice has come back to roost for this (laughs) most important of endeavors. She wrote and directed this series called Blacks, Blues, Blacks. So good. You can see it online. Now you can, thanks to KQED and an intrepid researcher who found it hidden and preserved in the Library of Congress in 2014. But for years, this was lost. The premise was this, and she wrote in one of her books, We were Blacks in Africa brought to America as slaves, where we created the blues and were painfully and proudly returning to being upstanding free Blacks again. 
the episodes were full of music and, and ministers and field trips and interviews and stories. And Maya was also the on-camera narrator, introducing each episode and its themes. I have a list of the themes, positive behavior, negative behavior, history, music, effective teaching of African history, education, business, art and literature, violence, and then the series summary. When you watch them online, and we'll link you up, I hope you are sucked in as quickly as I was by her presence. The very first part of the very first episode, she takes out a set of jacks, and she drops the ball, and she picks up the jacks, and she says, do you know what this is? Of course you know it's jacks. But really, it has its roots in African tradition, where the kids used to play it with rocks. And so she's able to relate history and African culture to the contemporary life in America that could be understood by anyone. And that is kind of a revelation, I think. Yeah. And exactly what they had wanted. That was the goal of the producers in the first place. And then did she deliver? She just over-delivered. This series was extremely well-received. Schools had adopted the programs and preachers were using Maya's subjects as topics for their sermons. And the notice from this series and also her friends relating the stories of her life at parties, I'll tell you, that was very helpful, induced an editor at Random House to reach out to her. His name was Robert Loomis and he called her and said, I'm calling to ask if you'd like to write an autobiography. But at that point, she was elbow deep in getting this series produced. And she's like, no, I'm busy. I'm a poet. I'm a playwright. I'm not a memoirist. I haven't lived enough life to write my autobiography. No, thank you. Well, thank you, Miss Angelo. She put the call out of her mind, but Robert Loomis did not. And he kept hunting her down and calling her and asking her to write her autobiography. But apparently he went to the Marguerite Johnson Trolley Conductor School of Tenacity because he <laughs> called at just the right time on her last day of production and said, it's probably for the best. You're right. You can't write an autobiography. Writing an autobiography as literature is the most difficult thing to write. Do you remember when back in the Harlem Writers Group, people said short stories are the hardest thing to write? And she says, well, then sign me up for a short story. Mm -hmm. Both Maya Angelou and I think that this man spoke to James Baldwin, who gave him the lever to open the sealed crate of refusal. Yes. No. Yes. I could just see James Baldwin going, okay, tell her she is not qualified and that she probably can't do it anyway. And thanks for her time. Okay, fair enough, says him writing notes. And then he gave her the phone call and she's like, all right, all right, I will try it. I don't know how it'll turn out, but I'll try it. And he said, write 40 or 50 pages, send them to me, see if I can get a contract. When do you think you can start? And she said, I'll start tomorrow. have two feline assistants here at the History Chicks. They work at the House of Wood in such vital capacities as typing random things on the laptop, making the noises. We couldn't get along without them. <laughs> but as much as I love Peep and Louise, the thing I'm not that fond of is 
the gifts they give me in their litter box. Everything from cleaning it to covering up the smell is a constant battle. And that's why I use Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter is just reinventing kitty litter. Unlike traditional litter, Pretty Litter's super light crystals trap odor and release moisture, resulting in dry, low-maintenance litter that doesn't smell. And Pretty Litter is virtually dust-free because it's manufactured with a specialized de-dusting process. Pretty Litter arrives safely at my door in a small, lightweight bag that lasts up to a month. Now that I get litter bags auto-shipped, I don't have to deal with last-minute trips to the store, and shipping is free. But above all else, here's why Pretty Litter is a pet parent's hero. It's a health indicator. Pretty Litter monitors my cat's health by changing colors when it detects potential underlying issues. You will absolutely not find that kind of innovation in conventional litter. Get the world's smartest litter without leaving home by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code CHICKS for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code CHICKS for 20% off. prettylitter.com, promo code CHICKS. Maya, challenged by this man to write the unwritable in autobiography as literature, went to London and holed up. And it really took her the better part of two years to write her first autobiography, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. The premise that she went into the whole project with was this, quote, I thought about Black women and wondered how we got to the way we are. In our country, white men were always in superior positions. After them came white women, then black men, then black women, who were historically the bottom stratum. How did that happen that we could nurse a nation of strangers, be maids to multitudes of people who scorned us, and still walk with some majesty and stand with a degree of pride? Mm-hmm. 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 Her writing process that she began here was the one that she would carry out for her entire writing career. That would be a yellow legal pad and a pen. You remember back, she didn't learn typing in school, so she didn't get you know shoehorned into a job that required typing or stenography. So she's writing longhand. She's writing all this stuff out longhand. That just blows my mind. I, I realize that a lot of people write that way. I'm not one um, of them. Hello. Okay. You know what, gentle listeners? <laughs> <laughs> I am going to call the poo of male cows on the statement that Susan just made, that she is not one of those people. Because between us, we calculated, and I honestly can't remember, how many miles of ink we have written with our <laughs> delicate hands on actual dead trees. But we have a stack of notes between us that is well over four or five feet tall, I will tell you. Okay, okay, I'll I'll own that. I'm uh, right now I'm looking at a book. Literally, there's like 40 pages in this thing of handwritten notes. Because and you showed me this, you taught me this, that if you handwrite out something, you'll remember it better than if you type it. But I was talking about creating writing, you know, like uh essay, like I used to do, columns and essays and things, stories. I can't imagine doing it longhand. It just seems like taking time to make the connections. Maybe I need to try it. Maybe I'm like stuck in my old ways <laughs> and I need to get out a legal pad and start writing and see what happens. Okay, I'll do that. You convince me. 
The title comes from a poem by a poet named Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Uh, The key phrase seems to be, I know why the caged bird sings, ah me, when his wing is bruised and his bosom sore. It is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer he sends from his heart's deep core. I loved her dedication, too. She dedicated it to my son, Guy Johnson, and all the strong black birds of promise. Mm -hmm. Even the dedication's beautiful. Like, can she write? Like, is her grocery list interesting? (laughs) I don't know. Do you remember when we were writing um, NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month? Uh And they tell you, speaking of grocery lists, anytime you get stuck, send your character to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. I had my character count, because that's 10 more words. Like, count to 10 and calm down. Oh, (laughs) I just figure, you know, you go to the grocery store, you can describe what you see, and there's people there, and you might knock yourself out of your rut. Anyway, so I wouldn't be surprised if she had a similar technique to knock her own self out of a rut. I, I can't confirm it is the grocery list. So this book covers the years that we talked about in part one of this podcast about Maya Angelou, about ages zero to 16. So she has put her life on the page and you get done with something you've spent so long on it and you kind of lose your sense of perspective about it. Is this even any good? I'm sick of this, etc. And at a party held by Sonia Orwell, the widow of George Orwell of 1984 fame, um, who collected around her like a salon, writers and painters, including Picasso. Let's just name drop them all in one paragraph. Um, Maya met and got to talking to Jessica Mitford. Let's call her Decca, like everyone else did, and we will get to her. By the way, the Mitford sisters are some of our most requested subjects. I will say that Decca alone is probably worth an episode, and she has five sisters. <laughs> but she had just published a memoir of her own, which was called Ons, H-O-N-S, Honorables, and Rubbles, to great acclaim, a memoirist at the dinner party. Would you um, look at my manuscript? Would you look it over? Absolutely, said Decca, although she was upper class. Maybe she said, absolutely. I don't know. (laughs) But she started reading it at breakfast one morning and just never put it down again until the dark of night. Absolutely fascinating, said Decca, and thus began a lifelong friendship between the daughter of a lord and the daughter of Stamps. Arkansas. That is something. It is. Well, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings came out to great acclaim in the year 1969. It was considered one of the most influential books in American culture, even right after it came out. Essential were some of the words. Vital. Her friend, James Baldwin, called it, and I quote, a biblical study in the midst of death. It was one of those books that everybody at the same time was reading and talking about. You know, the ones that sort of become cultural shorthand. I'm trying to think of a, (laughs) the most recent one I can think of is uh, The Da Vinci Code, which is like, that's not the same at all. Uh That's better than me. I was thinking of, oh, what is that series? Oh, Shades of Grey. I know. That's it. (laughs) I knew by your hesitation what it was going to be. So it was translated and printed worldwide and catapulted Maya Angelou to the height of literary fame. See what happens when you tell her something is impossible. (laughs) This book was on the bestseller list for 36 straight weeks. It was a National Book Award nomination, her first book. 
That's amazing. And it really was a book of her time. It was racism told by the oppressed, just at the perfect crossroads there at the late 60s. The white people that read it were on the whole surprised and shocked. The African-Americans who read it, for the most part, saw many sentiments and situations with which to identify. The book's honesty, and honestly, it's just, what am I going to call it? Just it didn't shy away from touchy subjects in any way. And it just blew everyone away that there was no euphemism. It was just like, here it is. I'm going to lay this out. And I think the hopeful message of the whole book is what struck me. Now, I read it when I was a teenager, and I will admit I should have read it, but I should have looked at it a little closer because I didn't even realize that it was autobiographical for some reason until a few years later. Yeah, I know. But it, it affected me that she could even write of a character that went through this. Obviously, I, you know, I wised up and I read the rest of the books. But and I think Maya Angelou was a great gateway for people like me, you know, of a certain social class, white people to learn, wow, this is going on. Do you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And I'm not trying to say this in a bad way, but I think we need those gateway people. And I think for a lot of people, Maya Angelou was one of those gateway people. She definitely started a conversation. She had a way of writing the most like inflammatory things, but in the most matter-of-fact way. It was quite a juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. And it was so intriguing to everyone that her editor, Mr. Loomis, said she wrote with such anger, but did not have any bitterness. And mm-hmm. that made the medicine go down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maya was invited to speak all over the country and was offered the Chubb Fellowship at Yale, which is basically a speaking engagement with a tiara on it. It's an extremely high honor. Just the publication of I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings launched. I mean, it was an explosion of activity for her for at least the next 10 years. There's so much going on. I don't know how she crammed it all in, quite honestly. But, you know, Maya, she considered herself a poet. And just like Mrs. Flowers had taught her, she said, I hear poetry when I'm writing it. I write for the voice, not the eye. And so her next book was a book of poetry. Just give me a cool drink of water for I die. And die is with three eyes. It was published the next year after I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, and it was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. So her first published book of poetry was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) Now, some of these poems began life as song lyrics for her stage act back at the good old Purple Onion. And some of those (laughs) had already been released on an album called The Poetry of Maya Angelou the year before Caged Bird came out. You can listen to it on YouTube, her reading some of the poems from this book. Any poems that she reads, any of her poems, I strong, I do put some in the show notes, you know, YouTube videos of her reading her poetry, but I strongly recommend this whole thing changed the way I look at poetry. This whole learning about her life, I'm grateful for it. Because so much of poetry, if you read it on the page, is just like a butterfly pinned to the back of mm-hmm. a picture and it's not the same experience. Mm-mm. And I think that might be why I pulled out that quote about writing for the voice, not the eye. That's the lesson that I learned. So in true zero to 60 fashion, the year after the poetry book came out, Maya wrote a screenplay that got produced and made it to the big screen called Georgia, Georgia, the very first movie ever filmed that was written by an African-American woman. Pioneer.com. <laughs> I know. And then... 
and extremely brief, couldn't be briefer, and frankly confusing stint playing our old friend Elizabeth Keckley on Broadway in a play called Look Away, which opened on January 7th and closed on January 7th after one <laughs> performance and netted Maya a Tony Award nomination. Okay. Weirder still, the winner of Maya's category at the Tonys was in a simultaneously produced different play also about Mrs. Lincoln and Elizabeth Keckley. I don't even know what to tell you about that. <laughs> I guess Mary Lincoln was in the zeitgeist, you know, like how sometimes right. like those fairy tale shows all came out at the same time or Ants and Bugs right. Life came out at the same time. What is that mm -hmm. story? Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. I do want to point out, though, that while it's like she's got these super hits coming out, Georgia, Georgia wasn't one of them. And it was not a good experience for her. She had written some songs for the movie as well that were totally ignored. It was filmed in Sweden and she was totally ignored. After she wrote the screenplay, she was just like a prop, you know, on the set as far as the production crew was concerned. She went so far as having to call her mother and cry. And her mother came to Sweden to kind of emotionally support her. How much do we love Vivian? She is a pistol. Vivian is doing an awful lot in her life at the same time that Maya is, you know, living hers to the fullest. And honestly, a lot of the things that she did might qualify her to be an episode for herself. One of the things, one of the jobs she had is she realized that women were not being allowed into the seamen's union, you know, people who work on ship. So she said, okay, I guess I'm going to become a seaman. She said to Maya, I am going to stick my leg in that door up to the hip to make sure that other women get this opportunity. Right after her triumph, question mark, on Broadway, Maya went to the South for the first time since the pattern incident. If you remember, she and some shopkeepers in Stamps, Arkansas had a little bit of a fracas and Maya's grandmother kicked her out and sent her away from town for her own safety. Maya was nervous about going back anywhere near the South. And I quote, I know my heart would break if I put my foot down on that soil, moist with old hurts, to face the fear and loathing at its source, or it would consume me. And Decca Metford, you know, daughter of a lord, went with her to give her moral support. And anytime anyone commented, as they did, even in the early 70s, on their mixed race friendship, Decca would say with a straight face, she's my daughter. Sometimes things happen like that, old man. <laughs> How bewildering is that? I know it came out with this cut glass British accent, too, which was already super weird. And then there's this super weird best friend combo that you're not used to as a person in the South. And then that is a ridiculous statement since their ages were in no way commensurate with that statement. <laughs> so I like the fact that Maya has a friend who's willing to just be like, shiny thing. Yeah. <laughs> While her friend is genuinely going through her own trauma. So 
Ultimately, Maya was going to write seven books in her autobiography series. But just in the 70s, in addition to I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, she also wrote Gather Together in My Name, which covered her Rita years, a lot of bad choices, a life of being a single mom and her entrance to being a performer. It covers her from like age 17 to 19. The next book she wrote was Singing and Swinging and Getting Merry Like Christmas. And it's her from age 21 to about 27. It's about her making better choices, about her entertainment career, about her developing awareness of race relations on a larger scale. And this is the book where she switches from Marguerite to Maya. And then she also wrote The Heart of a Woman, which was her from about age 29 to 34. Those were her California, New York, Cairo, and Ghana years. And it ends as Guy goes off to college. In addition to writing all those books, she also wrote two more books of poetry, which include some of the poems that you probably even know, including Phenomenal Woman and And Still I Rise. She directed two plays and she wrote and directed a couple. This is how much stuff she's doing. I'm not even going to name them. She wrote and directed a couple television series and she wrote music for Roberta Flack. Like you do. So she sort of alternated an autobiography with a book of poetry. She did that on purpose. And I think it's almost like arm day, leg day, arm day, leg day, <laughs> like <Right. laughs> to flex your different muscles. Her sequels to I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings were received very well for the most part, but none had the star power of her first book, if, if that's even important. But I wonder if the sheer shock value of that first one just couldn't possibly be matched. I mean, once you've already been shocked, you're kind of ready for the revelations, you know, it doesn't matter. They were all bestsellers and went into multiple printings. Maya had met Paul Defoe, or some will have it, Paul Defue. What was he then? A Welsh mm, man about town? construction worker, triangular piece of statuary at a book event. And there was electricity, electricity. His line was, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. And it worked. That's how much electricity there was because that line should not work. Tell about his most famous job. Job is in quotes, y'all. He was the very first naked centerfold in British Cosmopolitan. How's that for uh, something on your CV? While they were dating, because I assure you, after his opening salvo, they weren't apart again for many years, but he was the author of a spicy memoir, all these memoirists in her life, called In Praise of Long-Legged Women. Keep in mind, Maya Angelou is six feet tall. And the entire time they were dating, he was the husband of another woman, possibly the most famous feminist in England. And so I don't know what to say about that. I don't like him. I mean, at all, at all, at all. He reminds me of the crown, the way they depicted Princess Margaret's husband, Tony Armstrong Jones, like smooth and creepy and like thinking oh. a lot of his own Guatemalan-ness, not to put to birdcage movie reference on it. Like, he's so gross to me. But it doesn't matter what I think. It does not matter what I think. Maya loved him. She really did. They felt like soulmates. And they got married in 1974 and moved to wine country into a really lovely house that they rehabbed. And their friends made much of their eccentric relationship. Decca Mitford called them innocent and criminal, which seems to go along with the Maya we know from most of her books. You know, mm -hmm. she gets into some scrapes, yeah. but like not out of a sense of 
evil. For every shoe, there is a sock. Good for Maya, not for me. (laughs) Well, I love that they got married once and they enjoyed the ceremony so much that over the next few years, they did it twice more. They had two more weddings. I like that too. And they both love to cook. They both love to entertain and to be hospitable and have guests. They had this large retinue of of drop-by people. I just wish I was that personality. I'm just not... I'm always not comfortable. Uh-huh. I'm like, I don't even have a jar of mixed nuts available. Oh my God. I mean, I always have drink. I assure you, if you don't want to eat, drop by. Um, but <laughs> but they were they had this casual comfort with that that I wish I had, you know. Yeah, you see the pictures of them at this time, and she really genuinely looks happy, relaxed, and happy. Yeah. That's what you want for your friends, right? Yes. And you don't have to like your friends other halves. You don't have to. Mm -mm. Speaking of friends of Maya Angelou, also in the 70s, Maya was doing a lot of speaking. She was doing a lot of interviews on television. She is a superstar in the literary world at this point. And when she was in Maryland, she was asked by a very young reporter if she could have just five minutes of Miss Angelou's time. I'll set up at the hotel you're staying at, this reporter said. I won't call you until we're set up. And I don't want any longer than five minutes. And Maya was intrigued. So she said, okay, sure enough, on time, she was called down to the interview. The interviewer sat down and had this conversation with her on film. And exactly at five minutes, the interviewer said, well, thank you, Miss Angelo. To which Maya could respond, thank you, Miss Winfrey. Who? <laughs> Oprah Winfrey. She met Oprah Winfrey way back in the 70s. And it was just a quick interview when Oprah was just a reporter in Maryland. Love it. But Maya filed that face and that professionalism and that go-getter drive away for later use. And we'll talk about that relationship a little later. So even though Maya's dreams of attending college had been shunted aside after the birth of her son, the world began to make it up to her. And it was during this decade that Maya received the first in a long series of honorary degrees she would be awarded in her lifetime. Smith College began the series in 1975. When you hear her referred to as Dr. Angelo, it's not because she went through the PhD program. It's because she had so many honorary doctorates from very esteemed universities. She could claim the title. I think that's fair enough. And I know that there had been some controversy, especially right after her funeral, over whether or not people should call her Dr. Angelo or if she was, quote, authorized to have the title. I'm like, Mm -hmm. When multiple institutions of higher learning all over the place confer upon her the title, I think after a while, y'all should just let it stick, right? Mm-hmm. People well, people I- of high rank have deemed her worthy of the title and perhaps her work is her dissertation. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I absolutely know what you mean. This was kind of brought up recently with Dr. Jill Biden. It was a big thing on Twitter whether she be, should be called doctor, but she had a doctorate. So of course she can be called doctor. It was, but it was just a big blow up about using that word. It's like us being called historians. I always just tell people <laughs> we're storytellers because and that's, mm-hmm. you know, I almost think Maya Angelou yeah. is a storyteller too. She absorbed, she even, I can't remember what, the, this might actually be in an Oprah interview where she said she absorbs everything she has ever read. And, and she, when she walks into the room, she's the main character from The Good Earth. She is characters from Dickens. She's characters from Tolstoy and people meet her and they just don't understand that they're actually talking to 2000 people. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like that all the time. Like you're talking to a collection of memories and learning. So <laughs> that's true. That's very true. So the president of the good old U.S. of A. named Gerald Ford appointed her to the Bicentennial Commission. Now, I do not know how many of you were around in 1976. Um, you may have seen its quarters. But it was a pretty big, big deal. I was a small child, and even I know that the world ran out of red, white, and blue paint that year. I mean, Queen Elizabeth II herself came to this country personally with her own body and told us congratulations. And I was like, ooh, that's rough. (laughs) But good for you. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry about the tea. At 49, Maya Angelou appeared in the worldwide phenomenon, the TV series Roots by Alex Haley, a writer that Maya had known for years. We mentioned him earlier. Man, Susan, do you remember what a phenomenon this was? And this is before you could tape it. Mm -hmm. People had to Uh set their heinies in front of this TV. I, again, was pretty little, but remember how the whole country was obsessed with this miniseries. Oh, yeah. We planned our evenings around it. All of us watched it. People were talking about it. Maya's part was as the main character's uh, wise and feisty grandmother, who Maya said she was inspired by her own grandmother, Annie Henderson, in creating her character. And it must have worked because this role landed Maya with an Emmy nomination. Speaking of television, in 1979, Maya was the co-screenwriter for, drumroll please, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, an event on CBS television. Although these days you can see it, of course, on the YouTube. Uh, (laughs) Esther Raleigh, maybe most famous to us, aside from this, for playing Florida Evans in Good Times, was Grandmother Henderson. And that is where you can see the the visual of those two tiny little children having been just dropped off the side of the train, holding hands, just bewildered Mm -hmm. and blinking, hoping their life will become something, or maybe they live by the side of the tracks now. They didn't even know. And it was so, I don't mean pitiful, like pitiful, but I mean, just like you look at them and you're like, oh my God. Oh, I know. So it had some good, um, I don't know. It just really brought it alive. I thought. The year after that, Maya and Paul divorced, though they did stay in touch and always remained friends. In fact, she supported him financially for the rest of his life. Maya described what had happened to their formerly very soulmatey relationship. She put it all on her own shoulders, which I'm not sure was fair. The challenge I put on myself is so great that the person I live with feels challenged himself. I have no middle passage. I take everything to the maximum. And that's kind of really all she said about uh, why they broke up and really didn't talk bad about him or anything. So it was pretty noble. This was also the same year. Talk about roller coaster this year, man. This was the same year that her book, The Heart of a Woman, was published. This is book five. But I think, and many critics do too, this might be the most important book after her first. It's got a lot of the Africa life in it, her civil rights work, her relationships during this time, and the beginning of her writing career. The days are just packed in that book, and it was very well received. 
while we're on that roller coaster that's Maya's life, she wasn't alone, even though she was divorced. Her son, Guy, had moved to the area. They were living in Northern California. He was divorced and had custody of their young son, Colin. So Maya Angelo was a grandmother at this point, and she loved spending time with her grandson. Just, you know, and like you just said, she put everything into it. Guy's ex-wife had once a month visitations, and one weekend, while Guy was waiting for her to bring Colin home, he didn't come. She never brought him. She had run off with their son. She had abducted him. And for the next four years, Guy would use all his savings. Maya herself would use over $100,000 hiring anybody that could find this first five-year-old, then six-year-old, then seven-year-old, then eight-year-old child. He was on milk cartons. His photo was in police stations all over the country. So Maya was offered a job as a university professor. She moved to North Carolina to Wake Forest University, and she thought when she left to go accept this position that she was going to be a writer who happens to teach. And when she got there and started in where she taught things like writing, ethics, philosophy, theater, and theology, she discovered something about herself and started to realize that she was actually a teacher who happens to write. That is an interesting distinction. And she made it herself. Mm -hmm. Maya was so convinced that Colin would be returned to them that in her new North Carolina house, she had a room designed for him. So she had a grandson's room and a house for a grandson that they were still spending time and energy and a lot of money trying to find. But finally, after four years of him being missing, a woman whose identity that Maya has always kept anonymous called her and said that Colin's mother had been living with Colin in Austin, Texas. Maya flew down there immediately. The address where she had been sent to, the house was empty. She got the media involved. And very soon, the FBI and the police were all called in. And eventually, through a series of lawyers, Colin's mother turned him over at the police station. She said, they opened a door and this person who looks just like my son came running, grandma, grandma. She called Guy. She said, Guy, I have my hands on him. <laughs> and she handed the phone to the child and little Colin said to his father, hi, this is Luke. I mean, Colin. <gasps> For four years, he had been called Luke. I know. Mm. I know. The woman was charged and convicted of child stealing, but Guy and Maya asked for leniency. They didn't want Colin to think that they had put his mother in jail. She got five years of probation and community service. But every story has two sides. She wrote her side and she claims that Guy was abusive. And that's why she took Colin in the first place to protect him. So... The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Just like all of history, really. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we are mid-80s when Maya Angelou is walking along the street and recognizes someone from many years before. Ms. Winfrey, she said, <laughs> and recognized her. And sure enough, the energy that they had felt the first time uh, was real. And over time, they would develop what Oprah herself called mentor-sister-friend relationship. Oprah credits Maya Angelo with giving her the self-confidence to reach higher than her grasp, you know, to dare things. Because as Maya said, what are the consequences if you don't? You die either way. You know, it's like mm -hmm. a really grim philosophy, but 
you know, that's the facts, Jack. And Maya had developed a philosophy of her own as she grew older that honestly, I'm trying to live up to. The first part, when you learn, teach. That's what she's doing in North Carolina. That's what she's decided to do with people like Oprah or her students. She's going to be a mentor. The second part, when you get, give. And you know what? Can you not see that in Oprah, who Mm -hmm. is pretty much known Mm -hmm. as one of the most generous people out there, giving freely of her worldly goods and talent? And I think that's amazing. I think they lived that together, Oprah and Maya, and it was kind of a one-two punch. You know, Maya was already on a very large platform. Oprah had accessibility to a lot of people. And I think this is the area of history where Maya Angelou came into white suburban housewives' homes. Mm -hmm. You know, if they hadn't read I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, this was their first introduction to her. And what a powerful introduction. Right. You know, but the two of them doing exactly what you just said together. Yeah. Well, in 1986, the sixth book in the ever-expanding, I called it the (laughs) ever-expanding trilogy the other day and I cracked myself up. I'm like, what even is it? Um, It's uh, All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes, which really goes into the question about African identity versus American identity. And I think this one got a little bit less attention and praise than it might have because it was a little less timely. If this had come out in the late 60s, you know, when all of that was a giant question, it might have gotten a little more praise. It was actually panned by some people as, quote, inauthentic. Now, after 20 years of time has passed and things have changed, maybe you just don't understand the references, you know? Right. So anyway, so I'm waving my banner a little bit for All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes because I think that is an important rite of passage that people had to go through and to kind of examine. So anyway, it's worth reading. But here behind the scenes, she's writing, she's speaking, she's teaching, she's cooking, she's, you know, living. Time passes (laughs) as it does. But in 1991, another event happened, which changed Maya's life forever. In 1991, Vivian, her mother, was diagnosed with what turned out to be uh, emphysema and lung cancer and was very, very poorly indeed. And the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom invited her to come for a three-week professorial endeavor, which Maya turned it down. I cannot possibly come. I cannot. My mother is very sick. And her mother held her hand and said, you should go. This is a great opportunity. I'll be here when you come back. And that's the last time that she spoke to her mother. She went for her work trip. And by the time she came back, her mother was in a coma. Oh, God, I'm sorry. Oh, Becca. Well, I'm only sad because that same exact thing happened to me and it really feels bad. Oh, I'm sorry you had to say that right now. It's fine. It's real. I mean, you know what? Maya's a person. I'm a person. I'm just going to power through. But like, it really does feel bad. And there's some guilt that you left. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a good goodbye, you know? I mean, and so did Maya. Mm-hmm. Like, we said no. what we needed to say. We know how we felt. I have no mm-hmm. regrets with regard to that. So the last time I saw my mother um, awake was a week before before she died. And um, like Maya, um, I came back and she was unconscious. So that is what happened. She came back though and held her mother's hand for a few days. And 
I wanted to read this. Maya wrote, I took her hand and said, I've been told some people need to be given permission to leave. I don't know if you're waiting, but I can say you may have done all you came here to do. You've been a hard worker. White, Black, Asian, and Latino women ship out of the San Francisco port now because of you. See, that's that old, like, I'm going to go be a seaman and stick my leg in the door, you know, that we talked Mm -hmm. about before. Many men risk their lives to love you. You were a terrible mother of small children. There's a little humor. But there never has been anyone greater than you as a mother of a young adult. And her mother squeezed her hand twice. Maya squeezed back once. And then Maya went home. And in that night, as they put it, Vivian left. of your house feels a little less secure than you might want. Maybe it's a first floor window or French doors. In our house, it's our basement door that was making me feel vulnerable. But I never have to worry about that now because of my security system from Simply Safe. Now there's no time, day or night, where I have to worry because I know my house is always being guarded. Even if you already feel safe, that might not be true of everyone in your home. If you've never had that conversation, it's honestly not a bad idea to do it. I was surprised when our Simply Safe security system arrived that everybody in my family said that they were going to feel more at ease with it. It just feels really good to be able to press the home button on my Simply Safe keypad and hear the bass alarm say, alarm on, and know that if anyone did try to come in, that alarm would go off. I have to say the door and window open chime is really pleasant. And the thing is, Simply Safe makes it so easy. It really takes only about two minutes to customize the system on their website, simplysafe.com slash chicks. That system will arrive in about seven days. And then this is not hyperbole. It just takes 30 minutes to set it up. I know, I did it myself. It's really easy. So why don't you go to simplysafe.com slash chicks today to customize your system and get a free security camera. You'll also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there really is nothing to lose. That's Simply Safe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash chicks. It was an event in 1993 that boosted her again. The producer of Designing Women, who I'm sure has a name, but that is funnier for me to say, (laughs) was a close personal friend of one William Jefferson Clinton of Arkansas, who had just won the office of president of these United States. This producer was in charge of the inaugural ceremony, and so he knew that just who we wanted to have take the podium at this event, yet another child of Arkansas. Another, is it Arkansas-er? Arkansas-er. That's what my mom used to say, but she said it pejoratively when we did not close the screen door. Oh. (laughs) 
He wanted to express President Clinton's goal of inclusion, of social progress. Maya Angelou would be the first poet since Robert Frost, who spoke at the inaugural for JFK, to recite a poem at an inauguration, though not the last, as we saw very, very recently, of course. Mm -hmm. I'm making a little heart with my hands. Just a tiny little sidebar here. Robert Frost didn't read the poem that he wrote for the inauguration because it was snowing so hard he couldn't read the page. So he recited one that he had memorized. He recited the one that JFK had asked him to say, okay, which he yes. had written. Yes. But he had written like a, a preface and mm-hmm. he was all excited, special, you know, for the event that was going to be a surprise. And that's the one he couldn't pull off. And I think yeah. he was super bummed about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, just like you, you know, you would be. But at least he had the other one memorized and no one knew but him. So, well, Maya was very nervous. Also, she understood the symbolism and the responsibility of the whole thing. And at one point called her friend Decca Mitford and Decca Mitford came over and got her on the right track, I think. Like, put Maya into it, you know, Mm -hmm. just like stop overthinking this. Right. They had such a unique friendship. They were very close. And if you just casually look at Maya Angelou's past, you don't see her very much. But she was so close to Decca that Maya was there when she died. And Maya did write that she considered that woman like a sister. Right. And if anybody ever asked if there could be cross-race friendships, that's what she always pointed to. Like, mm-hmm. there's one that's closer than blood almost. So, yes, is the short answer. <laughs> So that was good. Well, on the day, she recited her poem that she had written especially for this event on the Pulse of Mourning, in which she called to many groups by name and said, history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, and if faced with courage, need not be lived again. And the very last stanza also speaks to me. Here on the pulse of this new day, you may have the grace to look up and out and into your sister's eyes and into your brother's face, your country, and say simply, very simply, with hope, good morning. The public loved it. Loved it. Her books of poetry, her autobiographies sold like absolute crazy all over the country. This is pre-Amazon. Imagine booksellers like, ah, filling out manual order forms as fast as they could. (laughs) 300 to 1200%, depending on the title, everything had to go into reprint. And the poetry critics were like, meh. I say jealous. (laughs) The thing is that These poems, as we've said before, Maya Angelou's work is meant to be lifted up with her voice to fill the audience with inspiration and emotion. Like, check, checkmate, critics. Done. You know, Mm -hmm. Maya Angelou had just cemented her place in history. And the recording of the poem at this event earned her a Grammy Award. (laughs) I just love that. At least this one didn't close. Well, I guess it did close after the first day. (laughs) Also in 1993, because Maya can't just do one thing a year and rest on her laurels, she also published the first of what would eventually become eight children's books. This one was based on one of her poems called Life Doesn't Frighten Me, and it was illustrated by Jean-Michel Basquiat. It's very charming. 
1995, she was pulled back to the world stage to recite another poem specially written for a major event. During the celebrations for the 50th anniversary of the United Nations, Maya Angelou read her poem, A Brave and Shining Truth, with the themes of peace and human rights, as you would think, since it was given at the UN. And the phrase that sticks out to me from that is, when we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. In 1996, Maya Angelou fulfilled pretty much a lifetime dream and directed her first major motion picture called Down in the Delta with uh, Alfre Woodard as the star. And it deals with some issues. Um, Addiction, the institution of slavery, you know, what it means to live under that sort of cloud. She doesn't shy away from it. Now, I will tell you, it's not an uplifting movie and neither of us really liked it. No. I know. It's one of those movies that I was watching it. I'm like, I really should focus on this movie because I think it's probably very important. And there's a message in here that I need to get. And I I couldn't. (laughs) I feel so bad. No, don't feel bad. And it's, you know, that's the thing, though. Things strike you where they don't. And it isn't even like people that have listened to our Frida Kahlo episode will know that Frida Kahlo thought it was just as good if someone hated her work as liked it because she thought, well, emotion is just as good if it's bad or good. I don't care. Right, right, right. Feel free to hate it. Have a drink. You know, she doesn't care. And I don't know that Maya Angelou is that dispassionate about her work, but she knows that her work can't speak to everyone all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, no, I know. Just based on this, the last, what, three months that we've been studying her, I think she would be fine with it as long as we knew why we didn't like it. Right, right. It was slow. That's my reason. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't so much content as pace, I guess I should mm-hmm. say. Yes. Uh, that same year, curiously enough, I think the network activates and then just people throw spaghetti at Maya Angelou's like willingness and some of it randomly sticks. She participated in an album with the famed act Ashford and Simpson for an album. I mean, she was on the majority of the tracks on this album with her spoken word. Um, So there's, you know, the beautiful voices of the two singers. And then Maya Angelou comes in with her deep voice and has the spoken word element. But man, what a random pairing that is. She later did an album with Wynton Marsalis when she was 79. So ladies and gentlemen. It is never too late. You know, there are videos that exist of Maya Angelou with Ashford and Simpson. And she just looks like she's having a ball up there on stage, you know, walking around, reciting her poetry. They're singing. The band's playing. I recognize some hooks that got later used in um, some dance techno. So I was like officially educated that those were samples. You never know what you're going to learn. Huh. Even if I knew I was listening for that, I would never get it. In the year 2000, yet another seriously strange left turn. We, in Kansas City, live in the home of the Hallmark Corporation. And in the year 2000, Maya Angelou, sure enough, collaborated with Hallmark on not only cards, but like some gifts. Like there are cups and bowls and dinnerware and all kinds of things with sayings, without sayings. It was called the Mosaic Collection. 
I don't know what to say about that. But the U.S. Poet Laureate at the time really criticized her and thought that she had demeaned herself by writing poetry for greeting cards. But she responded, I'm the people's poet. I write for the people. And then she told him a story of a woman who stopped her on the street and said that a Hallmark card that Maya Angelou had written had reunited she and her long lost daughter that she had not spoken to for five years. To which Maya said, if something I write brings people together, it has served its purpose and I have served my purpose. And so she would not brook any criticism for that work. She thought that was just as valuable as anything else because it touched people. No, I agree. And I was kind of surprised to find out that she was never named the nation's poet laureate. It's actually a title and a stipend bestowed by the Library of Congress. And the whole title is this, Poet Laureate Consultant in Poetry to the Library of Congress. That was not a title that she ever got. She got doctor a lot of times, but not the nation's Poet Laureate. However, the simple title, Poet Laureate, can be applied to a popular poet or one with great poetic contributions, which she clearly did. She may not be the nation's poet laureate, but she was certainly a poet laureate. Very good. In 2002, she wrote the sixth of the series of autobiographies called A Song Flung Up to Heaven. And it covers her life from about age 37 to 40. It's the part with Malcolm X, the part with Martin Luther King Jr., both being assassinated. And it goes up until the writing of I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Kind of meta. Very, very. (laughs) And then in 2004, yet another branching of the Maya Angelou creativity tree. The hits just keep coming. Hallelujah. The Welcome Table, A Lifetime of Memories with Recipes. And I know Susan has this book, has been cooking from this book and loves this book. I love the fact that she cooked cassoulet for MFK Fisher, one of the most famous food writers in the world (laughs) and future history chick subject. I I keep forgetting. I mean, I own every book she's ever written. So, and they're all destroyed because you know how I am with books, but nevertheless, they're all still readable. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that's the, that's the chutzpah that I am amazed by. Like, of all the people. But so I'm glad. And she talks about that experience in that book. Yeah, I love this book. I'm so glad I got it. (laughs) I cooked a lot. In 2010, she also published another cookbook called Great Food All Day Long, Cook Splendidly, Eat Smart. And she had herself experienced great weight loss intentional. And this book explains how she achieved weight loss through portion control. And that's the focus of that particular book. During the early 2000s, the Maya Angelou Research Center for Minority Health at Baptist Hospital, simultaneously the Wake Forest University School of Medicine, both open centers that did research into the effect of social justice on the health of African Americans. Like they wanted to discuss and identify and eliminate the disparity between the races when it came to healthcare. And Maya Angelou did a lot of work promoting and supporting those institutions. Something she said about this time that I think is very applicable to the modern day and me in particular, maybe. (laughs) 
I think there's been an attempt to terrify Americans. One thing about Americans, whether you like us or not, three words say that this is an American. Yes, I can. I can be the biggest jerk in the world. Yes, I can. I can be the kindest person you ever dreamed of. Yes, I can. But yes, I can is slowly being replaced by pessimism and cynicism. And I want us all to say, no, I will not hold these pessimistic ideas anymore. So Maya, I heard you. Okay. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) That is really applicable, isn't it? Yes, I can. From her big piece of advice that I'm taking to heart does sound quite a bit like the yes, we can uh, Obama's catchphrase, which actually came from Dolores Huerta of the United Farm Workers, by the way. (laughs) So everybody owes a debt of gratitude to Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta for that one. So let's give her a bow and a curtsy. Okay. But in fact, Maya Angelou supported and campaigned for Hillary Clinton during the primaries with which she actually had a real life friendship. So the surprise level should be pretty low. But she was not invited to deliver the inaugural poem for President Obama. But so were 99 point infinity percent of the rest of us. (laughs) If you know what I mean, like I wouldn't read too much into it. President Obama's own sister was named after Maya Angelou. (laughs) I'm just saying, you know. And President Obama awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2010. He doesn't seem like a guy that holds that kind of a grudge. No, not (laughs) at all. She did get on board once he was the nominee, though. She was behind him, you know, but she did support her, her friend, her sister. So that was good. During his administration, uh, her portrait was actually placed in the National Portrait Gallery. That's how important she is. And the year after that, Michelle Obama presented her with the Literary Arts Award and said, Maya Angelou teaches us it is not enough to seek greatness on our own. We must help others discover their greatness within themselves. We need to reach down. We need to reach out, give back and lift others the way Maya has lifted us. And we will tell you, Susan and I, right now that the honors Maya Angelou received are too long to list. We could just sit here for a year. And so picture, if you will, a movie trope where Susan and I come in with a rolled scroll and we let one of the ends go in front of you. (laughs) And it goes all the way across the room and everyone in the room stops talking to regard it. That's what we're dealing with. Yes. Yes. (laughs) In my head, it's going down a red carpet, but that just might be me. (laughs) And down the stairs and out the door. That's right. <laughs> also, in this era, she finally retired from teaching. She had been at Wake Forest University for 32 years teaching. Man. That's, I know. And she loved the area so much, she continued to live there in Winston-Salem. In 2013, she wrote what would be her final book and is considered by most to be the final in her autobiographical series. It's called Mom and Me and Mom. It focuses on the relationship that she had with her mother. She felt that she had to wait till later in her life to realize the importance that her mother played in her life. The book does repeat a lot of stories that she had told in other autobiographies. So there's some that don't include that and say that she just has a six book series, which seems fitting, right? To end the series at the very beginning, you know, and to end the series at the point where she wrote, I Know Where the Cage Bird Sings. There's just one more book that was put into her autobiographical series, whether you want to accept it or not. 
On May 22nd, 2014, she had a recorded interview from her home in North Carolina for the Major League Baseball's Civil Rights Luncheon that was going to be held later that week. But just four days later, on May 28th, 2014, the voice that spoke six languages, accepted over 30 honorary degrees, taught college for 32 years, was silenced. Maya Angelou died at the age of 86. And the world mourned. Tributes came in and were broadcast from world leaders, writers, entertainers. And a private ceremony was held, although televised, in a small chapel on campus of Wake Forest with speeches by the likes of Oprah Winfrey, Michelle Obama, and Bill Clinton. Later that year, her poem, A Brave and Startling Truth, was sent into space with the Orion Orbital Test Flight in which she said, We, this people of this wayward floating body, created on this earth, of this earth, have the power to fashion for this earth a climate where every man and every woman can live freely without sanctimonious piety, without crippling fear. Well, that is a beautiful way to end this. And now it is time for media. You know, first off, We did promise you that we would do a little investigating into the Myers-Briggs tendencies of our subject. And Susan has has done that research for us. (laughs) Oh, I did. Because this is my Myers-Briggs, you know. I wanted to find my people. And Maya Angelou is one of those people. E-N-F-J. As is. And I'm not going to read the whole list, but just like the highlights. Oprah, Obama, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., Jennifer Lawrence, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Reese Witherspoon, Helena Bonham Carter. Are you jealous yet, Beckett? Lauren Graham. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Freddie Mercury, Bono, Peyton Manning, Diane Sawyer, James Lipton. And then the article I read had some suspected characters like literary characters that were enfjs who's the one from harry potter uh actually there wasn't one but emma woodhouse elizabeth bennett amy march isabel crawley also prince hans from frozen and loki from the mcu which are bad (laughs) (laughs) but i thought i'd throw those in there too just you know to balance everything out oh yes and susan vollenweiter that was great How about some books? Now, obviously, I am going to list her seven autobiographies, starting with the most famous, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, followed by Gather Together in My Name, Singing and Swinging and Getting Merry Like Christmas, The Heart of a Woman, All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes, A Song Flung Up to Heaven, and mom and me and mom. I checked them all out of the library before it closed. And then they kept closing, opening, closing, opening. Also, I really, really wanted to write in the book and I wanted to turn down the corners. So I thought I had better buy these books. And so I found a um, compilation, which is actually almost too big to hold with one hand and is almost 1200 pages. Worth it. You know, also I got to write all over it close your ears. It's (laughs) It's my book. I bought it. And I really needed to make notes to myself. Um, And it's also doubly fat as it was because I've turned down um, 40% of the pages, which is not very helpful, um, really, (laughs) to see. (laughs) 
to find what you're looking for. That's funny. But if you are saying, wow, that's a lot of pages for me to read, I'm going to point you towards Maya Angelou, The Autobiographies, a BBC radio dramatization of the series up until A Song Flung Up to Heaven. So it's not the entire story. A lot is cut out, but it's a really great dramatization and it gives you a good overview of her life. I mean, things that we didn't talk about in this episode are in there. So I just, I really enjoyed it. It was the very first thing that I listened to. And I was like giddy. And I lost like five pounds listening to Maya, (laughs) walking and listening to Maya Angelou. So I was pretty thrilled. (laughs) Well, that is awesome. Now, as to a regular old biography, there are some. But I didn't really find one that did me any better than the source herself. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I did like a book called The Life of the Author, Maya Angelou by Linda Wagner Martin. It is significantly condensed from the behemoth that can press sunflowers. It's so heavy that um, includes all of Maya Angelou's actual work. It's uh, around 150 pages. The one that I did find was Maya Angelou, A Glorious Celebration by Marsha Ann Gillespie, Rosa Johnson Butler, and Richard A. Long with a foreword by Oprah Winfrey. It was the closest I could get, but it was still not the deep biography that I would have liked to have read. You know, that fact-checked all her her autobiographies. So there you go, a project just waiting for the right <laughs> person. Um, I uh, found a really good, I wouldn't even call this a middle grade book. I would say this is fifth grade, sixth grade, maybe. Um, Maya Angelou, More Than a Poet by Elaine Silvinsky Lissandrelli. And then for the littler kids, there is one that's part of a series, Who Was?, then Maya Angelou with a uh, caricature of her with a giant head on the cover. <laughs> That's how you'll recognize this particular series. This is for the eight to tens. Um, and this one is by Ellen Labreck. And then also a book by Danielle Jawando called Maya Angelou, uh, Great Lives in a series. And of course, you know, she wrote eight children's books herself. So you could pick any one of those. And an infinite amount of poetry. Yes. I also picked up The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Likes of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. by Dr. Peniel E. Johnson. It was a detailed explanation of the nuances and beliefs of these two, you know, civil rights icons who seem to have opposing views but work together towards civil rights. And at times, I think one had pieces of the other's philosophy, and Uh that part is not. I mean, this isn't like A and B. It's like A, A, B, and then the other guy is like B, B, A. Right. (laughs) Does that make any sense? Right, right. No, it totally does. It totally does. And I would be remiss if I didn't suggest that you pick up at least one of her cookbooks The one that I bought was Hallelujah, The Welcome Table, A Lifetime of Memories with Recipes. And what it was was an essay about a specific food memory in her life and then the actual food recipe. It was so wonderful. Unlike the Harvey House cookbook where I couldn't find anything to cook for my family, I am like cooking through this book. 
It's so fantastic. Now, I don't know if you remember this from part two, but I am interested to know if her fried chicken recipe is in this cookbook because <laughs> fried chicken by Maya Angelou is the thing that tamed old Billie Holiday. So <laughs> I might need that. Yeah, um, I want to say it is. And there's, I mean, I've tried several of the recipes in there. I'm still waiting for a sale on short ribs <laughs> because they're really expensive, but I really want to try her recipe of those. So she also has another one called Great Food All Day Long, Cook Splendidly, Eat Smart. And this was after she had lost a considerable amount of weight and it focuses on weight loss through portion control. So the recipes are, are very flavorful, but that wasn't mine. So I couldn't fold it. I just borrowed it. So I couldn't fold the pages and put post-it notes in it. You know, you are a very big believer in post-it notes. I am. I love flags. I, I So is our um, friend Liz over at the Satellite Sisters. She is known for her pink post-it notes. Really? <laughs> All well, over I, her kitchen wall. Oh, my. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't go that far. But in my books, there's a lot of post-it flags usually. That's because you are law-abiding and I am just a terror. Maybe I'm Loki. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, all right. Now, as to thingies from the internet, you can actually watch on YouTube, as of this recording, um, almost all of the movie I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings with Diane Carroll. I don't know how long that will last. There is a lovely interview with Maya about her life in Porgy and Bess. And she is so saucy in it. And I just really love it. I'll provide you a link about that. Also, there are <laughs> there's an interview with her about the daily routines of um, famous authors. Mm -hmm. And Maya Angelou appears quite prominently in that, along with the likes of Kurt Vonnegut and Susan Sontag and Ernest Hemingway, who we haven't covered because he's a rooster. <laughs> anyway, I just think that is a great article um, from Brain Pickings. Also, history of Lift Every Voice and Sing, otherwise known as the African American National Anthem. A little history on the Rorschach test that you can take for yourself and see if you, like me, are left of center. <laughs> also, just some of the songs from Porgy and Bess so that we are not, you know, getting in your ears with them. Also, a little expose about the thriving jazz scene in Hawaii. That was a rabbit hole that I fell down. Oh, Mm -hmm. So good. And then just for a little comedy, I'm not going to inundate you with all these. I, we can put them on the um, <laughs> website, but there is a guy that reads. OK, do you remember a song by TLC called No Scrubs? I don't want no scrubs. Scrub is oh, a yeah, man yeah, yeah, who. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. There is an actor who reads the lyrics to No Scrubs in the voice of Maya Angelou online. <laughs> and it is so funny that I just would be remiss not to lead you there. So. It's hilarious. That's, that is funny. Yeah, you can find, if you just go to YouTube, I mean, you know, it just keeps suggesting, but we'll put uh, her reading Phenomenal Woman in the show notes because it's just swoon worthy to hear it in her voice, which is just magical. There is a Maya Angelou Barbie doll. <laughs> she is holding I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. It is sold out. I did put my name on the wait list, <laughs> but I have yet to be notified. So I don't know if it's going to be remade or anything, but there's a picture of it that exists out there. 
You can also, for a relatively inexpensive price, um, get a hold of her Calypso album on eBay. It was under $50 the last time I saw it. So Cool. Now, there is um, a website out there, Caged Bird Songs, that takes her poems being read by her and puts them to hip-hop music. This, not for everyone. I'm one of those people it wasn't for. But there is a short film on YouTube. I think it might be in Vimeo, but I'll link you up. It's called All Alone Together, Night Falls on a World Lockdown. And it's Maya Angelou's poem, Alone read while filmmakers from around the world did these little vignettes of what their lives were looking like during the pandemic. It's beautiful. It's huh. just beautiful. Yeah, yeah. it's beautiful. Also, there's an NPR interview with her that was done less than a year before she died. It's very short, but in it, she talks about not being ready to think about her legacy. And it's just heartbreaking to know that she was so close to the you know, that legacy being started, you know? Mm -hmm. Let's see. You can also, for three bucks on Prime, you can also get Down in the Delta with Alfrey Woodard. The movie that Maya directed, I couldn't find it anywhere for free. It was three bucks on Prime. And to be perfectly honest with you, it went a little slow for me, so I didn't quite finish it. But Roots, you can also get Roots um, (laughs) on HBO Max or on Prime for six bucks. Man, I do remember when that was on TV. I mean, uh-huh. I was very, very little. And there uh-huh. I remember was debate over whether I was old enough to be allowed to watch it. And it's not like anybody could tape it. I know, young people, I know. What did you say? <laughs> no. If you missed it, you missed it. Yeah, I remember. And and ultimately I know my little sisters and um brother. We're not allowed to watch it, but I was allowed. And there were times when I was told that I had to cover my eyes. So, wow. I, I was, I think, a little older and watched the whole thing and it haunted me as it should. If you have a PBS passport for Prime, you can watch the PBS American Masters on Maya Angelou called Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. It's from 2017. It was done, but there's interviews with her in it, as well as with Guy and with Colin and lots of big name people. It's a it's a beautiful documentary about her life. And oh, there's lots of footage, including actual footage from her Calypso years which was fun to watch. And I can't seem to find Drunk History has a really big opportunity <laughs> to make an index. Because I, again, you know, you search to try to see if there's a Drunk History and I can't find one. Doesn't mean there isn't one. It just means that there's not, you know. Yes. So there is a um, list on CNN.com of her uh, 15 most memorable speeches when they were given and little snippets from each one. So that's a little bit of a, like a short form thing you can just go into, dip into and catch the flavor. You know, a lot of her speeches. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything else. And in closing, let me leave you with a quote from Maya Angelou herself. A bit of advice, perhaps, for all of us to follow. Try to live your life in a way that you will not regret years of useless virtues and inertia and timidity. Pick up the battle. This is your life. This is your world. Make it a better one right where you are. Thanks for listening. Bye. 
If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on your favorite podcatcher. There are a few tickets still available for our locals meetup. If you are London adjacent, we are having an elegant cruise with dinner along the Thames on August 7th. If you would like to follow up on how to buy tickets for that event, just go to lightmindstravel.com and follow the links. Links to the things we talked about today can be found at our website, thehistorychicks.com. While you're there, check out our back catalog. Links to things we didn't have time to talk about can be found on our Pinterest board, where you will find a selection of delightful rabbit holes for every occasion. The songs in the middle are A Fork Where a Fork Don't Fit by our friend James Harper and Pathétique Sonata in C Minor by Mario Agero. The end song is Press On by Lute. See you next time. In my mind I'm so convincing With this heart I'll go the distance With this voice I can't uplift them With these words I make them listen When the world I hold is heavy No one tear can break the levy I won't quit till heaven's ready Fight these ways and hold it steady I press on Am I all alone? It's just me and this microphone. Can anyone hear me out there? Anyone? My mind just really out there. Going crazy, trying to stay sane. Spin cycle going on in my brain. Round and round, thoughts they go. With so much unsaid that no one knows. The pain inside, I keep it bottled up. Trying to keep from turning the bottle up. It's been so long, feel like the bottom's up. Looking for a getaway car to turn the throttle up. Feels like I'm headed nowhere fast. With a dollar in a dream that's about to be dashed. On the highway of life, I can't afford the gas. So the pedal to the metal till I finish the crash. In my mind, I'm so convincing. With this heart, I'll go the distance. With this voice, I can't uplift them.